I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Boris Johnson is facing more questions about his future. Tory MP still not happy. But the weekends, the Prime Minister was asked by reporters in Rwanda whether he'd like to serve a full second term as Prime Minister. He replied, at the moment, I'm thinking actively about the third. And you know what could happen then, but I'll review it when I get to it. All the way into the 2030s. A humorous deflection or a hubristic joke? It's all a bit like when Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair vowed to go on and on and on and on. Well, I've been speaking to Tory MPs from across the country and across the party spectrum over the weekend, because that's how I like to have fun, about the Prime Minister's prospects. We'll bring you the private, off-the-record thoughts of Tory MPs. And ask, is there any prospect of Rebels winning as they try to force out Boris Johnson over and over and over again? Uh, so that's coming up in our big thing in just a moment. First, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel and on a Monday is Libby Rachey, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. The Colonists with Libby Rachey, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio. Yes, it's that time of the week. We always speak to two of our favourite columnists on a Monday. It is, of course, Libby Rachey. Morning, Libby. Morning. And morning to Rachel. Morning, Rachel. Morning. Uh, now, we're gonna, let's uh, start off by talking about the, uh, the Tory party. We're going to uh, do it a bit more uh, a bit later on when we find out what Tory MPs off the record think. It feels like we're sort of slightly trapped in this circle of people who are unhappy, maybe a few more people are unhappy. Everyone's hoping that someone else is going to do something. Uh, and in the meantime, he just goes onwards, onwards to 2030 and beyond, Libby. Yes, yes. Well, we were, we were all joking last night, saying, "Oh, wow, goodness, that's only about another another twelve hours." You know, twenty thirty tonight. Um, but no, it is. Uh, it's a problem in that I think the problem is not having any obvious successor around everybody, which everybody else will gather round because they're all in little factions. You know, the Rishi faction and the others and the whatever the Hunt faction. And and I think this is why he's able just to go on. He is in this extraordinary privileged position. But I think Claire Foger's piece of the Times today is right. He is the Jeremy Corbyn of the Tory party. And the idea of somebody who lies and somebody who is in it, who wants the gold, gold wallpaper, is such a dangerous thing for people to think about the Tory party that it will damage them for years. And, and do you think it'll take, take as long? They need, so the Tory party need a sort of Je, uh, Keir Starmer. Maybe they do just need a dull person uh, to um, to replace him, Rachel. Well, the, the point about um, Boris Johnson is he was his whole purpose for the Tory party was that he was a winner, 
Um, and now what those by-elections have shown is that he's a loser and he's kind of repelling voters in the way that he used to once attract them. You know, he was that sort of Heineken politician who reached into the parts of the electorate that other Tories couldn't reach. But that sort of turned on its head and all the, the kind of rule-breaking that you know, helped him to get to power has now sort of become his Achilles heel. And I think you're right, that sort of sense of um, decency that uh, the Tories desperately need to be associated with and sort of competence, that they're in danger of losing that. And I I spoke to one um, former cabinet minister recently who just said, the problem is, it's, you know, Boris Johnson's always been a brand, his brand is trash, but the longer he stays there, the more he's going to trash the Tory party's brand. So there is this kind of acceptance among MPs that, you know, they probably need to get rid of him before the election just for the sake of their own survival. But the but they don't quite know when or how. But the longer he stays, a lot of them are beginning to think the worse it's going to be for the party as a whole. Uh, uh, is there a is there a counter argument which says that Boris Johnson, uh, the fact that nobody else uh, has managed to mount a case against him? Um, uh, or at least mount a, a, a successful challenge, even in the depths of as bad as things get. I mean, albeit before the by-elections, but most people assume they're going to lose the by-elections. He still won the vote of confidence. Is it not the case that maybe the 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 the, the moaners, his opponents, have just failed? And if they haven't got the balls to do something about it, they should shut up, Libby. I think one of the problems is that he surrounded himself with yes-men and with really not very talented people, with a few exceptions, like, like Rishi Sunak and like I think Sajid Javid. Um, he surrounded himself with some fairly poor people and therefore there aren't senior people in the party standing up. You know, there's a lot of very good people on the backbenchers who never did get promoted. There's a lot of very good, quite senior people on the backbenchers who never did get promoted. And so it's quite difficult to found a, to, to start a coup, you know, have the men in suits come in and have a word with him if all the closest men in suits are kind of not very good, you know, <laughs> bit helpless. And the way they are being wheeled out onto the morning shows to defend the most indefensible things that he personally does or says is just extraordinary. And of course, once you've been wheeled out a few times to say those things, you're associated with them. And so, you know, it becomes more and more difficult to create a coup. If there's going to be a coup, it'll have to come from right up down the bottom. And and I suppose that's the problem, isn't it, Rachel, is that a coup from the bottom is harder to mount? Yes, although bear in mind that, you know, if if Sir Graham Brady, the head of this sort of backbench committee, thought that there there was a majority against the Prime Minister and he went and said that to Boris Johnson, um, then that would be pretty difficult for him. Um, the, my, my main problem is that he has this, you know, he says he wants to go on until the third term, etc. But why? For what purpose? So apart from his own power. So you sort of wonder, he, he hasn't really got a reason to be Prime Minister, apart from just power and sort of having nice gold wallpaper and maybe building the £150,000 treehouse at Chequers. Um, but what is his actual defining policy or purpose that's going to make a difference to the country? That's, that's my biggest problem. And I think a lot of the Tory MPs are starting to think that as well. I'm very glad you said that, Rachel, because I've been predicting for ages on this programme that, oh, he won't take much longer, he'll want to go. He'll pick a moment to say, (laughs) oh, I led you through the pandemic and now, you know, you're saver of the world, I go off to make a lot of money for my ever-increasing family. Uh, I've been thinking that for ages, but I do not know why he is still bothering. 
Because I think he wants to be, he likes power. And he, you know, he wants to be, he, he sort of wants to be the person who's prime minister. But I, what I don't quite see is why he wants to be prime minister. What's the purpose apart from himself? But then I suppose in a way, that's, you could say that's a reason for him to step down. But then if his only purpose is to carry on being prime minister, then he doesn't need to achieve anything. Every morning he gets up and if he's still prime minister... Well, that's exactly. A, that's a that win. is his purpose. That's his purpose in his mind. But for the country, you sort of want it to be slightly better than that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know. it was it was the treehouse, really. It was the treehouse. The fact this child is is not yet two. Um, when we he's only just two, I think he's just turned two. I mean, it's some while before he'll want a treehouse. How long does he think he's going to have checkers? The, the treehouse. I mean, the treehouse story is extraordinary. So this is uh, the Times revealed it on uh, on Saturday. I mean, the, the fact that it was going to cost £150,000. Boris Johnson planned to build a, a £150,000 treehouse in the grounds of Chequers. And that's more than actual houses cost for actual people in some of the seats that the Tories won at the last election. I mean, it's just astonishing that you could think that's a good idea. And inevitably, uh, two sources said there were discussions about having Lord Brownlow, the man who ended up paying for the wallpaper, <laughs> fund the project... <laughs> Plans for the treehouse were drawn up, but it was ditched after oh. Prime Minister's close protection officers warned of a security risk. Not ditched because Get it was Lord a bad Brownlow idea. on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Not ditched it was a bad idea. Uh, this was despite the fact. Uh, so the uh, police said there was a security risk because you could see it from the road. It was going to have bulletproof glass, which increased <laughs> the cost of the, of the project significantly. You're just unbelievable. It is, uh, yeah, it is absolutely, uh, is, um, it is absolutely extraordinary. Somebody's just texted, uh, texted in saying, now Boris is talking about three terms, the treehouse is looking better value for money. I'm not <laughs> sure it is. I think when they talked about, you know, the property ladder, uh, we assumed it was to help other people uh, buy a house, not the, <laughs> not uh, the gold-plated the ladder up to the treehouse. <laughs> uh, exactly right. Um, let's, uh, let's turn our attention to uh, the future of degrees. We talk, we talk a lot about um, education with you both on a Monday. Um, and how graduate the uh, English literature is being suspended as a degree at a university because of pressure from government to ensure graduates go straight into well-paid jobs. I was quite surprised by this because English, um, English literature, I mean, I, I always thought that history was the one that uh, hit with the worst employment rate afterwards, uh, you know, because people who couldn't think of anything else better to do went to a history degree. I just thought English literature was was reasonably employable, but apparently not, Rachel. Well, as an English graduate, ah. <laughs> I can say that there is a value to it. And I think the problem is that the government actually has got itself into this model about university and higher education. And it's sort of confused. It's sort of the understanding the cost of everything and the value of nothing, that actually there is more to education than how much you earn and what kind of job you get. And I, I so I do think it's incredibly important that people you know degrees do have value but i think that's up to the people applying to those degrees it's not up to the um government to try and discourage universities from doing certain kinds of courses which is what seems to be behind this decision to drop the literature degree um so there's a there's and it's i think it sort of plays into this slightly wider um government agenda which is a bit hostile to the universities that they you know universities are all about culture you know they're sort of launching this culture war and it's all criticizing mickey mouse degrees ministers seem to sort of use every opportunity they can to bash 
the universities. And in fact, it was David Willits, the former universities minister and a conservative peer himself, who said um, to us on the Education Commission that there is a suspicion that, the, you know, some conservatives think that graduates just don't vote Tory, so we don't want to make any more of them. Or his words to that effect, I'm slightly paraphrasing him, but there is a sort of danger of a kind of wider political agenda here that's quite, actually quite cynical. Uh, what do you think, Libby? Well, yes, I agree with everything Rachel says. It's absolutely true. But I mean, it's slightly ironic that in a world where a sort of fast talking eloquence and, um, you know, persuading people seems to be one of the main industries and the, the main sort of ways people climb the ladder, um, that uh, a literature degree, uh, you know, which treats with language and the use of language and the impact of language would be thought to be so valueless. And I had old school, totally old school English degree. I mean, I did Beowulf, you know, I did medieval poets like Scottish poets like Henryson, who I would never have approached otherwise. And approaching those, you know, it, it broadens a lot of things in, in your mind and in your thinking. And it made me, I remember in my, my sort of very first jobs after university, you know, my, my sort of junkie jobs, it made me a better barmaid. You know, it made me, it made me a better um, telex temp at Gordon's Gin. You know, it, it, it furnishes something in your mind. And that should be a lot of what university is about, whatever. I mean, in some ways, yes, I wish I'd done engineering or chemistry or something sort of more physically useful, but I sort of tried to be useful in the ways I can be and my mind has been uh, maybe the more balanced for it I don't know I suppose that's the thing isn't it is, is there is this sort of tension between uh, the value of learning in and of itself versus well if you're going to spend all that money and get into all that debt then you know is it going to pay off uh, in the long run they shouldn't be getting into all that debt we should put a graduate tax on people of my generation who did well on free university degrees, my generation and the ones below, they shouldn't be in this big debt. That's wrong. Rachel, last one. Well, the other thing is that they, the, the way the government defines this kind of value is they decide, they look at what job you're doing 15 months after you graduate. And she, I don't think that's an accurate way of measuring the value or success of a degree, that actually lots of people may take longer to get to the profession or job that they eventually want but overall a degree is shown over many years to have for most people a benefit huge benefit both in terms of what you earn and in terms of health life outcomes all of those kind of things Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester there and of course you can read them in the Times every week just get yourself a subscription go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times red box up next we speak to Tory MPs off the record Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yeah, let's go all the way back now. Just after the 1987 election. Margaret Thatcher gave an interview to the BBC in which she declared... Yes, I hope to go on and on. Didn't quite work out like that. Inflation rose to 10%. Interest rates started rising. And then the Chancellor resigned. By 1990, she was out. I don't know if any of that sounds familiar to anyone uh, looking at politics today. And then we jump to 2004. Tony Blair vowed to serve a full third term. In 2005, he won that third term in a landslide election. But by summer 2006, his critics were getting impatient. In September that year, he used an interview with The Times to insist, I will not go on and on, but still refused to give a date. Within days, eight junior members of his government resigned in a dramatic bid to force his hand. Now, only political nerds probably will remember there was a junior minister and supporters of Cornerbound, Tom Watson, and seven ministerial bag carriers who quit... But Tony Blair's hand was forced, and then he publicly confirmed for the first time. As for my um, uh, timing and date of departure, I would have preferred to do this in my own way. But as has been pretty obvious um, from what many of my cabinet colleagues have said um, earlier in the week, the next party conference in a couple of weeks will be my last party conference as party leader. Well, true to his word, the 2006 Labour conference was his last and he left Downing Street in June 2007, three years earlier than he'd liked. So, is history now repeating itself? At the weekend, Boris Johnson was asked by reporters in Rwanda whether he'd like to serve a full second term as Prime Minister. He replied, At the moment, I'm thinking actively about the third term, and you know what could happen then. But I will review that when I get to it. So he could be Prime Minister all the way into 2030 and beyond. A humorous deflection... A hubristic joke. Well, who knows? I've been speaking to Conservative MPs from across the country and across the party spectrum about the Prime Minister's prospects. That's how I like to spend my weekends. So, as he continues his travels, what is the mood like back home? Well, the prospect of a third term going on and on and on into the 2030s has not gone down well. This was Tim Lawton, the Tory MP, on Times Radio yesterday. I don't think it's very helpful. I think it could be construed as a little arrogant. And I seem to recall Mrs Thatcher when she was slightly on the ropes, talking about going on and on and on. I think what everybody wants to see is the Prime Minister concentrating on getting the first term uh, back on uh, track uh, and talk about planning for the future under his uh, leadership is a distraction. Um, We shouldn't be talking about future parliaments under Conservative governments, but not necessarily under the same person. So I'm not quite sure why he's done it, uh, and it's not very helpful. That was Tim Lawton on the record yesterday. But privately, the mood is even worse. So now we're going to bring you what people have been saying to me and others at the Times. Off the record, so we get their honest assessment. They don't want to be named. So we've put voices to the words, our full team of 
WADA-trained actors have been voicing up what Tory MPs have been telling me about Boris Johnson's threat, joke, statement that he wants to go on and on to a third term. This is what one Red Wall Tory MP told me. It is completely nuts pouring oil on the fire. Just when he should have shown some humility to the party and the country, he does the opposite. It winds people up. Who is advising him? I've had some colleagues saying that if we had a vote tomorrow, he would lose. I'm not so sure, but it feels so much more febrile after the by-elections than I expected. Of course, that was those two by-elections happened last week. The Conservatives losing Wakefield to Labour and Tiverton and Honiton in Devon to the Lib Dems. Well, this is what one long-serving West Country MP told me. He has lost the plot. Hard to know, but feel he'll be gone by year end or sooner. Opposition is spreading and deepening and is now likely to organise. Yeah, it's really interesting that the idea that up until now the opposition to Boris Johnson hasn't been organised. Well, what about that threat to go on and on? This is what a former cabinet minister said. It's very Boris making clear that he's going precisely nowhere. Extreme self-confidence that he can pull this around. Can he? Who knows? It's a uh, French uh, Conservative MP there, voiced up by uh, one of our colleagues here at Times Radio. And this is what a Tory MP in a southern Lib Dem facing fi- seat said. To say that comment is tin-eared and a red rag to MPs is the understatement of the year. Tin-eared and a red rag to MPs. Well, did Boris Johnson even mean it? This is what one senior Tory backbencher told me at the weekend. It's bravado. In practice, there'll come a point when the PM will want to go and do speeches and beaches. He'll earn millions. Had he lost the vote of confidence, he'd be richer than Gary Lineker. Speeches and beaches, that's a very good uh, way of putting it. So, those are the anonymous MPs giving us their views. Well, Boris Johnson tried to clarify his comments about going on and on when he was at the G7 summit in Germany yesterday. This is a government that is getting on with delivering uh, for people of this country and uh, we've got a huge amount to do. That's what I'm trying to get at. So in the immediate uh, future, we've got to get people through the current uh, global inflationary pressures, the post-COVID Ukraine exacerbated uh, inflationary pressures that people have got, uh, energy uh, price spike that we've got. But at the same time, we've got a massive agenda of uh, reform and improvement, a plan uh, for a stronger economy. That's Boris Johnson uh, speaking at the weekend. On and on and on. Well, Willie, Stephen Swinford is the political editor of The Times and joins me live now from Westminster. Hi, Steve. Hi, Matt. So how serious is this moment? It's the Monday after those by-elections. It was pretty explosive, it felt, on Friday. Uh, lots. Uh, how do you uh, gauge his position today? I think it's basically a situation of stalemate. So lots of people are very unhappy. You walk around Port Carlos House here in Westminster, Matt, and you'll bump into loads of MPs who are really unhappy. And it's probably at the moment more than the four in ten that voted to oust him from office. But at the moment, there's very little they can do about it. So all eyes in Westminster are now focused on the 1922 elections, which are due in a fortnight's time. And that's the body of backbone, that runs the kind of backbenchers, if you like. And that has the power to potentially call another confidence vote. It can only do so if the rules changed. So these elections are a kind of critical path on the way to changing those rules. And that is going to dominate a lot of the bandwidth here in Westminster for the next couple of weeks. It's really interesting that. So basically, the, uh, you need to get the 15%, 54 letters, trigger the vote of no confidence, what happened three weeks ago today. Boris Johnson won it. In theory, then, he's safe from challenge for another year. But this idea of pushing MPs who are critical of Boris Johnson to stand in the 1922 committee elections uh, to change the rules 
has seems to be taking hold, but not all MPs are convinced it's a good idea. This is what one former cabinet minister told me. I'm still not sure that there are 180 who would vote against him. There are some very deluded MPs who have bought into the cult of Boris. Well, could there be another vote of confidence this term before the summer recess? This Tory MP in a Lib Dem facing seat isn't so sure. Sadly, I think the pre-summer recess timetable is too tight to progress this. And yet again, he gets lucky. Number 10 will be just thinking about getting to recess. How tragic. And gives lie to the fact that he's really thinking about 2022, never mind 2035. Totally delusional. And then this is what a uh, Tory MP in the Midlands said about the idea of changing the rules. There's a real danger in a loaded 1922 exec losing whatever authority it has to administer the party rules. So I hope we don't go down that line. Then again, number 10 did try to get a friendly chair last year. So, source for the goose. Source for the goose, source for the gander. Well, that's a reference to an attempt last year to force out Graham Brady as chairman of the 1922 committee and replace him with the number 10 loyalist Heather Wheeler. And this might all seem like we're disappearing into the weeds a bit here, Steve, but um, this, is, this is important. The weeds matter because the weeds are what could ultimately do for the Prime Minister here and see him removed from office. At the moment, there are two potential ways of getting rid of him. One is if cabinet ministers decide enough's enough and turn around and tell him to go. Sitting here on this Monday morning, it doesn't feel like any of the cabinet that, that are still there are in that position. He looks like he's going to delay a reshuffle until the autumn. And I'm just not picking up anyone saying that he's got to go or saying that the rival's ready to stand. That's not where we are. So if, it's, if anything is going to happen, it's going to come from the backbenches. Now, this will take time. It will be contentious and it could be some months before anything actually happens in terms of a kind of tangible rule change. But what happens in the next couple of weeks could shape that. So that's what we're all looking out for. Will the 1922 committee be in a position to change the rules or not? Well, I spoke to Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of the 1922 committee, uh, a couple of weeks ago and asked him about the prospect of a rule change. And it's not something that we as an executive have discussed at all in this parliament. There was a point in the previous parliament when those discussions took place at length. Uh, we ended up without changing the, the rule. Um, I, I'm just trying to obviously have reflected quite a lot on this because of the amount of speculation that's been in the media. Uh, it, it's a little bit like saying, well, you know, I, I, I haven't um, committed a crime of burglary because Parliament might possibly change the law in the future. Now, of course, it is technically possible that laws can be changed in the future, and it's possible that rules can be changed in the future. Uh, but uh, I think it's important we say that the rule that is in place uh, and uh, is likely to remain in place is that there is a year's period of grace following a confidence vote. That was going back a couple of weeks ago. Then on Friday, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Clifton-Brown, uh, who's on the 1922 committee, he pointed out there was an alternative to change the rules, and that was, as Steve Smith was just explaining, getting the cabinet to rise up. Well, there are there are two routes uh, by which uh, he uh, could be persuaded to resign. One is uh, by the whole executive of the 1922 committee, having taken into account the wider views of the entire parliamentary party and then decide to change the rules... Uh, that is quite difficult, I think, to change the rules in, in mid-contest. Or the other way is for um, the majority of the cabinet to say that they have no confidence in the prime minister, in which case he would not be able to carry on. So I think there will be a lot of conversations taking place next week and we'll have to see what happens. Uh, but uh, this is what the Environment Secretary, George Eustace, told Times Radio this morning. 
I think the party uh, generally has had that vote, has put it uh, behind us, uh, you know, for now, and they want the Prime Minister to really uh, double down and address some of the challenges we've got in this country, and they want to give him the space to do that. And, you know, if um, if we do that over the next year, 18 months, and we, we demonstrate that we've got on top of these post-pandemic uh, challenges that the whole world's grappling with, well, then things might look very different. Uh, the thing is, Steve, there's been a lot of talk over the weekend about uh, the idea of cabinet ministers acting. But it, it just this feels like desperation a little bit. Um, let's just listen to uh, Damien Green, who's obviously Theresa May's deputy. He was on Channel 4's Andrew Neil show last night, so almost begging cabinet ministers with leadership hopes to show their stripes. If this, this long agony uh, for everyone concerned, from the Prime Minister down, uh, is to be brought to a head one way or the other, then maybe somebody in the Cabinet might wish to take some action. Is there anyone in the Cabinet, obviously apart from uh, uh, Oliver Dowden, uh, who did take some action, finally, is there anyone who you're keeping an eye on, Steve? At the moment, no. So the obvious candidate would have been Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, who was very diminished by the row over his wife's finances and tax affairs. Um, so he's kind of at the moment focused on the cost of living and the measures to tackle that and kind of rebuilding. And the rest of the Cabinet is almost slavishly loyal and holding out this threat of a reshuffle is actually a means of keeping them in line. So the moment he's done that, one, you end up with a load of uh, people that were ministers on the back benches being pretty irritated and cantankerous and, and potentially posing a threat to you. And two, you lose the threat the, the, of the reshuffle, which helps keep people in line. I'm just not picking it up mass at the moment in terms of where people are. So the focus has got to be on the backbenchers. And what's happening in Westminster today is a lot of those rebels are telling one another to get their letters back into Graham Brady. Even though it's symbolic, even though it can't trigger a leadership contest, their argument is that the more confidence letters that go into Graham Brady, the more pressure there will be for a change in the rules once the re-elections have taken place. So that's the focus of the rebels at the moment. It's interesting. The, the thing that, speaking to Tory MPs over the weekend, the two things that sort of kept coming up was partly sort of uh partly exasperation that um there weren't people ministers willing to take action show some leadership actually they wondered if it was it sort of reaches a point where your inability to take action might count against you this is what one mp who said said privately they'd support an alternative leader someone like paddy morton but the refusal to act actually starts damaging them in the long run this is what one of them said what i'd say to cabinet ministers who are not resigning is when he does finally go the people who wanted him to go for a long time will remember that you did nothing. There is a lack of leadership from those who aspire to it. And then the flip side, Steve, is you've got actually a lack of leadership on the rebellion side as well. So many names, you know, Damien Green, who we just heard from, you know, if he was leading, the, it, it gets dismissed. This is what one MP said to me. They'll call it a Ramona plot, even though it isn't. So who is it? Is it Andrea Ledson, Mark Harper, Steve Baker, Jeremy? Who... You know, Jeremy Hunt and Tom Tugendhat can't put themselves at the, 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 the forefront of the efforts to oust him because they've all got leadership ambitions. Or, they, or, or maybe they should. Yeah, I mean, they, they could well, Matt. I mean, it, it, realistically, it looks like if there was to be an alternative to leadership, it's probably going to come from within the cabinet. Nadeem Zahawi has kept his cards very close to his chest on that. He's been repeatedly asked, we've asked him, do you want the job of leader? And he just kind of dodges the question. Liz Truss is obviously another. So there will be candidates when that moment comes. But in this game, Matt, it often comes down to 
who wants it the most? Who in the, in the government wants to be the prime minister? And there is no doubt that at the moment, the person that most wants to be prime minister and, and wants to continue doing that is Boris Johnson. All those examples that you played earlier on about Tony Blair, about David Cameron, even Theresa May, it got to a point when they were in a position that someone else wanted it more than them. They wanted the top job more than them. And therefore they gave way, right? Events overtook them. But at the moment with this prime minister, he this morning was given an interview at the G7 summit in Bavaria, where he said that he thinks the issue is settled with his leadership. And he sees that confidence vote as a mandate to continue. And although lots of people disagree with them, and we disagree with him on that, I don't see anyone else with the same kind of animal appetite for the top job that he's got at the moment. Steve, it's really interesting that that point about he wants it more than anyone else actually matters so much in, in politics. Really good to speak to us. Stephen Swim for the political editor of The Times, joining us live from Westminster as we play you uh, voiced up clips of what MPs have been telling me and, and Steve over the weekend uh, off the records. It's bringing a real sense of what's going on inside the Tory party. But as uh, I was saying at the, uh, at the top of the big thing, other prime ministers have vowed to go on and on before. Uh, and uh, it hasn't always panned out particularly well for them. Well, one person who's seen, I think I count up, possibly nine prime ministers come and go uh, over the years. It's uh, Philip Webster, former political editor of The Times, who joins me now. Hi, Phil. Hi there. Hi. Um, you were obviously very, very, very young when you started working in uh, working in Parliament and covering what was going on in the House of Commons. Um, putting it into some historical context, this, uh, Boris Johnson's position and once you get to the point of I'm going to go on and on and on and on, and that might actually count against you rather than in your favour. Yeah, I mean, remember in Thatcher's case, she said just that. I go, I, I go on and on. But in her case, it was so different. There was somebody who wanted her job and was openly challenging for it. That was Michael Heseltine. He challenged her and uh, she didn't get the required number of votes. And when the cabinet went in day by day, or hour by hour, to see Margaret Thatcher and to say, look, if you stand again in that second round, they could, they could say to her, you'll lose and Michael Heseltine will win. And the last thing she wanted at that point in her life was for Michael Heseltine to succeed. It didn't really matter who else uh, succeeded, but she didn't want Michael Heseltine. And uh, she knew that it would be Douglas Hurd or John Major if it wasn't Heseltine, and she didn't really care, provided it wasn't Heseltine. And because Heseltine's um, action then is a, is a lesson for these cabinet ministers we've been talking about this morning, because he who wields the dagger never wears the crown. And that happened in Heseltine's case. And it must be the case that the People we've been mentioning this morning, the Sunaks, the Trusses, the Wallaces, the Zahawis, they haven't put their head above the parapet, above the parapet as clearly Dowden hoped on Friday somebody might, um, because they are being, they fear being seen as the assassin. And Heseltine was the assassin. Uh, he ended up as Deputy Prime Minister to John Major, but that was not the job he wanted. But is that do, do is it because it's just such a good phrase? He wears the crown. Uh, he rules the night. Doesn't wear the crown. Uh, that it's taken on sort of um, disproportionate importance because there are other cases of wielding the knife or at least moving against the leader uh, does work in your favour. Yes, uh, yes. Um, you know, actually, Gordon Brown. You could argue. <laughs> I mean, it took him a long time, but he wielded the it took knife. Took him thirteen for, years. It took him a it blooming him long 30. time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he did get there in the end. I mean, M Margaret Thatcher. You know, moving against uh, Ted Heath, and actually, there is a risk of the, if you you know the, the if you take the um, 
the the the, the phrase too. I mean, Michael Heston made it up, I think, but that he wields a knife doesn't wear the crown. You know, you you could end up uh, in a sort of David Miliband situation. The, the early man, he didn't wield the knife against Gordon Brown when lots of people have wanted him to, and now he's not even in in politics. Is it, it, actually there's a counter argument for saying that a, a lack of caution could be damaging these people. Absolutely. Uh, I think it was, it was either Heseltine or Shakespeare who came up with that map. I'm not sure. But, um, I think it yeah, sounds I think Shakespeare. We've looked, I think it sounds, sounds Shakespeare, but actually it is just Heseltine. But anyway. <laughs> but you're quite right. And I mean, I know Oliver Dowden didn't consult with anybody and he said he didn't consult with anybody. But he clearly was expecting somebody to pick up the mantle on Friday. And they, they, it was open to anybody to do it at that point. I must say, I... Was it all day? I was half expecting somebody to come out of the woodwork. And some of these people, some of the, the, the counter argument is that if you're first out of the traps in this situation, you might actually get the reward because there are five or six sort of pretty nondescript candidates out there at the moment. The one who goes first may well be the one who gets rewarded because they've shown a bit of courage. Tory MPs, as, we, as you've revealed this morning with some of your, um, the comments that you've, you've um, disclosed, they are fed up with the cabinet at the moment. The cabinet is not showing, it's a supine cabinet. It's showing no kind of strength at all. The cabinet in Thatcher's day in 1990, when you look at the names in that cabinet, they were pretty strong figures. And when she heard from them, look, Margaret, you're going to lose, she took notice. Um, and th- they do need... Uh, a bit of backbone in that cabinet if they are going to get rid of Boris uh, uh, before the next election. Uh, just funny, uh, Phil, because it was you who did the... Let's go back to the t- that, that summer of 2006. Swirling spe- it's only a year after Blair had won that election. Swirling speculation about you know people saying he needed to set a date and he couldn't go on and on and on. And he calls you in to check us. And you sit down with him to do an interview in which you, you were basically trying desperately to get him to set a date and he just wouldn't. That's right. I, uh, I, I sat down with him and I asked him 10 times, uh, have you got something to tell me, Prime Minister? Um, there's a lot of stuff about you going before the uh, announcing at conference that this conference will be your last. And he kept looking at me quizzically and saying, so where, where did you get all that from? And I kept coming back. I kept coming back because I knew he had something in mind. But it, what I didn't know uh, was that he'd seen Peter Mandelson, various other close allies that morning, just before the uh, just before my interview. They'd gone out of checkers by the back door, apparently, as my, me and the photographer came in from the front. I didn't know about this. They'd uh, they'd steeled his resolve for that for the purpose of that interview. But as we know. Uh, it was less than a week because the Brownites went completely mad when my story dropped that night and had their their Balti House plot in uh, in Birmingham. Within five or six days, he had indeed to announce that he was going, uh, and the next conference a few weeks later would be his last. So all we need is a group of Tory MPs and ministerial aides to head to a that that was it called B- Bill Shan the Curry House in Birmingham. They need to go. Yeah. They need to go and plot somewhere properly. <laughs> I, well, that's why they've rather messed up this time round. There clearly was the absence of proper plotting, and you could say that showed the strength of feeling uh, on the back benches that 148 with any without any kind of organisation voted to, to get rid of him. But had there been a modicum of plotting? Um, 
had they arranged for several ministers not to be around or several ministers, you know, to fall over on the way to the Commons, they could have got rid of him that time round. And that if there is a second vote, as Stephen was saying this morning, if there is a second vote of confidence, it's absolutely pointless holding it unless they're sure in advance that they've got, say, 30 ministers on board who will either not vote or come across in the secrecy of the, of the, of the ballot box. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.